You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. To find more resources and learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Good morning. Welcome again to Holy Cross. Uh, You might notice I'm not Pete. Pete's not here with us this week. Instead, you get to hear from me. I'm really excited to share uh, from God's Word this morning. And and this morning we're kicking off a new mini-series in our almost year-long mega-series on John. Uh, We're going to be in John chapter 2 this morning as we begin to talk about signs, signs, the signs of Jesus. I think we're doing seven weeks on these, uh, the signs of Christ. Uh, And we're in John chapter 2. Pete's out of town with us. A lot of our kids are also out of school. I forgot to announce, we don't have youth group this week because there's no fall break. Or there is fall break because there's no youth group. There we go. But uh, Pete's out of town. I'm preaching and we're doing John chapter 2. The first one is the water into wine. So uh, if you don't mind turning along in your copy of God's Word with me this morning, John chapter 2, we're going to do verses 1 through 11. This is the Word of the Lord. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there, For the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and didn't know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, And said to him, everybody serves good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and all his disciples, and he stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, let's, Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Uh, Dear Lord, Father God, I just thank you for um, this sign that you gave us almost 2,000 years ago of turning water into wine. I pray that as we open up your word this morning, uh, you would help me to speak nothing but your word, and that you would help us all to uh, see your glory manifested today, uh, even as it was 2,000 years ago. In your name we pray, amen. Well, good morning. We're talking about signs, signs, the Greek word semios, also translated sometimes as miracles, miracles. And when we run into the signs of Jesus, we immediately run straight up against the impossible, right? When we see something that seems to be impossible happening, we, we have to acknowledge that it's either real or it's fake or the, the version, the story we're reading is fake, right? It, it immediately, I think, confronts us with, is this book legitimately true? Is this really the Son of God? Or is this just some, some you know, made-up story? And, and perhaps you come to this text this morning not believing that it's true, not believing that he's the Son of God. 
Uh, if that is you, I would encourage you to, to, to come along for the story. Taste it and see it and think through this story as if it's real. Uh, but ultimately, I can't convince you that it's real, right? Like, I, I'm not going to be able to do that this morning. We believe that only the Holy Spirit can do that. Uh, so I'm going to read it as if it's true and it's authentic. Uh, and a lot of people throughout the history of the church have really struggled with this idea that Jesus really did these miraculous things. And in each of these signs, we're going to run up against this truth. Is he really who he says that he is? But in John, Christ's signs give us not only pause for belief, but a reason for belief. When we see Christ doing signs in this book, they produce belief. And it's my hope, it's my faith that, that they will produce the same in you, if that's where you're at this morning. So, as we look at this sign, I, I want to first pause and think, why wine? Why is it wine that Christ starts with? Imagine the Jewish people. They are oppressed. They're, they're not, they don't live in a free country. They are not in control of their own military. They don't have one. They're not able to take their own taxes. They don't get to vote. That might be a blessing, I guess, sometimes. But they don't have elections. Uh, they don't get to do any of the things that we would think of as like making us, you know, making America so wonderful. And Yet, uh, when, Christ sends, when Christ comes as the Messiah, as the King, the long-awaited Jesus, the first public miracle we get in John is that he shows up at a party with like 50 kegs worth of wine. Like, that's a weird, that's a weird thing, right? If I was Jesus and I was coming and I was going to show my people that I'm the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the first thing I might not do is show up with a bunch of alcohol, like, that's just kind of a weird thing, right? And think about it. Israel has had their temple destroyed. They've had, they built it again. They had that one destroyed. They've been taken over by Alexander. They've been taken over by Rome. And now Christ shows up. And he shows up at a wedding. And he makes wine. Like, that's just, it's kind of weird. So I, I love asking that. Why does he do this uh, in, in this way? I think the reason he does, we're going to see that in turning water into wine, Christ shows us his faithfulness to the Father. He, sh he blesses abundantly as the perfect groom. And he gives us a glimpse of his glory so that we might believe in him. Right In the, in the last chapter, if you, if you turn back a page, we didn't look at it last week. We we're going to look at it for Advent. But we talked about the word has become flesh. This is what just, John has just finished telling us about. How the Son of God who existed before the world was made has become human. And now he shows up, and the first thing he publicly does that's miraculous, that's a sign pointing to the fact that he really is the Word, not just some man, is he turns water into wine so that he can show us his faithfulness to this Father. He can give us, uh, show us that he abundantly blesses his people. He's going to be the perfect groom, unlike the guy in the story. And then he's going to give us a glimpse of the glory that we're going to get to see later in the book all so that we might believe in him. So let's, let's dive in. Verse 1 of chapter 2. On the third day, there's a wedding at Cana. And, and Jesus' mom is there. And Jesus is invited also with his disciples. Kind of weird, right? Like if you're planning a wedding and like Jesus and 12 other dudes show up, I would be like, that's kind of weird. Like, please, you've just totally ruined our guest list. But this is wedding, this wedding's a little bit different than ours. It's like a whole town affair, right? Everybody's involved. It might have lasted like a week long and he's just showing up on the last day of it. This is a whole big town party. 
We were down at Tucson Meet Yourself. This is a lot more like that than it is at like the kind of wedding that we have now. And, and Christ shows up and he's inviting and, and the wine runs out, verse three. And his mom comes up to him. Now, we, we notice that his dad's not here. It's because we think, we know later in the gospel that his dad's gonna be dead and Mary's a widow. We think she's probably already a widow at this point. And Jesus is the firstborn son. Remember that whole born out of wedlock thing? And so he's the oldest kid out of all the brothers and sisters. And he's probably kind of been leading the family, supporting them, because he's literally the perfect child. And he's been doing everything that Mary could want, right? He's the perfect son, literally. And so, like, the party's going, it's ripping, roaring, and they run out of wine, which is an enormous social faux pas in the day. Right? Like at our wedding, my big responsibility was to make sure that the playlist the DJ had was good and that all my groomsmen had on the right clothes. And I almost failed at that, but I didn't. Well, in their day, the groom's big job, his biggest task was to foot the bill for the wine. And they would have like a whole position, a whole like master of ceremonies, the maitre d', maybe like the little mayor of the town. It was a really honorable one who inv- who, whose whole job it was was to distribute the wine and maybe even mix it with some water. They did that commonly. They, their wine is maybe a little more like uh, American beer than what we're thinking of with wine. We don't really know. You can, you can look at a lot of different historical sources. But his whole job was to mix the wine and to pour the wine and to hand the wine out. And the groom's one really big job, besides getting married, was to pay for it, to have lots of it, so that at this big citywide party, they didn't run out. Well, they run out. Mary finds out about it. Maybe she's involved. Maybe she's one of those nice ladies helping behind the scenes to make sure everything happens. And she comes to her super resourceful oldest son, Jesus, who's been running the family. And she's like, Jesus, I really need your help. They have run out of wine. Now, we don't know, I don't really know what she's expecting, right? He hasn't done public miracles yet. So I don't really think she's expecting him to do like miracle miracles here. I think she's thinking, well, he's a rabbi, he's a teacher, he's got a bunch of guys following him around. Maybe he can get up and give like an impassioned speech about how like too much wine's a problem anyways and we'll be fine with water. <laughs> or like maybe he'll collect some money and then we'll go buy some more wine and all will be good there. Like they still have more wine in the town. This is a, a culture deeply concerned with grapes. Uh, they got plenty of it. They just don't have it at the wedding. But instead, uh, Jesus gets really rude. Verse four, his Well, he doesn't get rude, but it seems like he gets rude, right? Jesus says to her, verse 4, Woman, what does this have to do with me? What? Like, so we have to pause here, because I read that, and I'm like, Jesus is clearly rude to his mom. Ergo, Jesus has sinned. Therefore, he's not God. No, we can't do that. We can't do that. The one thing we know, we need to let our theology inform our reading here. The one thing we know is not happening is that Jesus is sinning, Right? This is important when we read God's word. We have to let the rest of scripture interpret it. We know Christ is without sin. So we know he's not being rude. He's not doing the wrong thing here. So what is going on? Well, he calls her woman, and you can do a lot of Greek stuff. It's not like a big cultural translational thing. It is kind of rude that he calls her this, right? It's a little bit like somebody in the airport saying, ma'am, 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 if you're going too slow. Or like a cab driver yelling lady or something at somebody. Like it's not a, a friendly thing. You could call people this and it would be like not rude, right? In the South, you could say ma'am all the time. And it's definitely not rude. But it's also unlike in the South. It's not what you call your mom, right? You don't, in this culture, you did not just like say to your mom, like woman. Like that is, it, it could be a, 
not as bad as it maybe sounds, but it's, it's not how you speak gently to your mom when she asks you to do something. And he's, then the next phrase is, is actually maybe even more jarring. He says, what does this have to do with me? This phrase shows up a couple other times in the New Testament, always on the lips of people who were possessed by demons speaking to Jesus. <laughs> it, it only shows up by people who are talking to Jesus saying like, what do you got to do with me, Jesus? Get away from me. Um, so it's, it's a really kind of a coarse phrase. Like it's not like it's rude or anything, but it's, it's not a friendly one. And like, so why the hostility? Why the hostility? I think this is where Jesus is showing us his faithfulness is first to the Father. He has this persistent problem throughout his ministry on earth that his family thinks they have a specific pull over him, a control, his earthly family, his physical family. They constantly think that they have pull, a pull over him that's special, right? In college, I had a really good friend who no matter what we needed or no matter what the problem was, he'd be like, oh, don't worry, I know a guy. My dad's got a good friend that does that. And like, no matter what the problem was, he'd always be like, oh, don't worry, man, I know a guy. Like, it was always a family connection that was gonna solve the issue. Christ's family wants to play that same card. Like, well, it'll, you know, we can send a little bit more because he's we got Jesus in the family, right? They're constantly, they're coming up against him. They're telling him, please stop doing miracles in Galilee. You're embarrassing us. Like, go down to Jerusalem and do that stuff. Like, they're coming later, and they're trying to get him to stop, right? His brother James, who's going to write the book of James, his other brother Jude, they don't believe in him while he's, while he's on earth, but they do later. He's got some, some family issues. And he's showing us here that his primary relationship is not with his mom, not with his physical family, but with his father. His primary allegiance, he has to be faithful to primarily the father, not his physical family. And, and what does that mean for us, right? That's, that's actually some really good news, I think. Because we come from a whole host of different families, right? There, there's kind of two ways we could err in thinking about family. We could think, Jesus really likes me because of my family, right? My grandparents are missionaries and my parents are pastors or something like that, right? Or like my family has been really involved in the church and so like I'm good, right? That's the preacher's kid phenomenon. And there, um, we, could, we could err in that side. The other side would be to think like, oh man, like Christ doesn't really want me because my family are not Christian type of people, right? Maybe you've come from that background. Maybe you're in that background. Maybe you know people like that that feel as if the church isn't for them because their family doesn't fit in there. Well, Christ is showing us that our earthly families are not what he's deeply concerned about. Instead, he's concerned about our relationship to the Father, the Father, God. He's going to tell us later, right, that he can do nothing apart from the Father, John 17, he tells us a whole lot of different words to say, I do only the Father's will. Philippians 2, he didn't account account equality of the Father a thing to be grasped. Instead, he serves the Father, right? And so he shows us in this passage, I think what he's trying to show us is that he is faithful first to the Father. And there's an application there for me as well, for each of us, right? Sometimes our family, sadly, is at odds with the Father. We see this in the gospel when Christ encounters a man who just says, come and follow me. And the guy's like, well, let me stop. I've got an old dad. I'm going to like put him in the retirement home and take care of him for a couple years, and then I will follow you. And he says, no, 
You've got to follow me first. Let the dead bury their dead. It's harsh. It's, it's, it seems rude. It seems at first like he's being mean to his mom here. But I think what he's showing us is first and foremost, he is faithful to the father. Well, well what happens after this? He, he says this phrase to his mom. And then she says uh, what a lot of commentators think is one of those faithful verses in the Bible. I, I kind of read it with derision. Like I kind of want to originally read it Verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you, right? Like at first I read that like she's just throwing up her hands and walking away. But I think after like digging into this text this week, I'm assume, I want to assume that Mary is actually saying this in faith. That she's saying, you know, okay, cool. Do whatever he tells you. She says to the servant, she says to the wait staff, uh, do anything he asks from you. Do it. Listen to him. That's really hard, Right? That's really, really hard for us to surrender. Like, am I ready to do anything Christ tells me? If, if Christ told me to jump off a cliff, would you? I don't, I don't know. Uh, maybe. Uh, but she says, do whatever he tells you to do. I think here in this passage, Mary is exhibiting really, really good faith. Uh, at least I'd, I'd rather assume that than assume that she's throwing up her hands uh, in frustration. Either way, though, uh, in verse 6, the servants do uh, what he tells them. Verse 6, there's six tone water jars there for Jew- Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now these are massive, massive jugs that they use to take basically ritual baths in to cleanse themselves so that they're not unclean. So that not, not OCD unclean with germs like COVID, but they are instead clean spiritually. This is like a big, big thing, right? They believe that the reason why they're subjected people, the reason why the temple's been torn down is because they didn't follow God's law. And so now they've chosen to overdo it. And they're deeply, way too concerned with the external acts of religion, right? We could see this in our own lives. Maybe we've messed up and then we we have those kind of foxhole prayer moments. God, if you could just give me this, if Alabama could just win today, then I would be such a good Christian, right? And, And we make these kind of bargaining prayers and then we come back to God with these, uh, I will do X number of, you know, Hail Marys and three Bible journalings and read and pray and do it this many times a week. And we come up with these kind of systems to earn our way back into God's good graces. This was what they were obsessed with during Christ's lifetime. We, we have our own versions of this today. And, and they have put these massive jars just as a, it's just so part of the culture that of course when they go to the wedding, they're going to need to spiritually cleanse themselves before they can even attend a wedding. And, and it's amazing because they've got wine jugs there that are empty. But Jesus chooses to take the spiritual cleansing foot water bathtub jars that are massive and say, like, you don't need those anymore. You don't need to worry about being spiritually clean. I'm going to use them to fill them up with wine. Which is just an amazing point right in itself, right? He takes these outward signs of religion and says, like, forget having to clean yourself. We're going to fill it up with wine. This is amazing. I love it. So he takes these and he says to the servants, fill them up with water. And they fill them up to the brim. And he says, now take some out and take it to the master of the feast. Now this miracle story doesn't actually tell us when the miracle happens like we don't know if it's happened before they scoop up the water or between the time they scoop it up and they walk it over to the master of the feast we don't know but it sounds like they just 
fill these jugs up with water. Maybe there's some foot scum floating on the top. I don't know. And they get their ladle out and they take it over to like the maitre d', maybe like the little mayor of their town who's the guy serving the wine, the master of the ceremony. And they take it over and the servant's got to be like, this is just really, I'm so sorry, sir. But like Jesus told me to do this. And they take it over, right? And he's going to exclaim like, oh my goodness, you saved the best wine. It's amazing, right? So they take it, verse 9, he tastes it, and he basically says, this is really weird. He says to the groom, he says, like, why did you serve the good stuff now, right? Normally people serve the good stuff at the beginning, and then after everyone's a little bit sloshed, then they serve the cheap beer. Like, why are you saving the good wine for now? But it, I don't know, but it's really good. And, and he's really over the moon about how great the wine is, Right? In these verses, we see that Christ is going to bless his people abundantly as the perfect groom. He doesn't just bless them a little bit. He blesses them abundantly, right? These big jars, these six uh, of these stone containers, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. I did a little bit of math. We talked about this at the men's breakfast on Friday. Uh, It's between 7 and 11 full-size kegs, uh, if we're thinking they're about the same ABV as American beer. Um, that's a lot of alcohol. If it's bottles of wine, it's between 592 to 666 full bottles of wine. Or up to maybe 4,000 glasses. A lot of wine. Um, there's so many stats we could dig into. But he blesses them extremely abundantly. This is way more than they're going to need to finish out the party. This is way more than they're going to need, uh, than they've asked for. He doesn't just slightly like fix the problem. It's overflowing amounts of wine that he's created. And it's not just like it does the trick, like some Franzia, right? This is not some cheap stuff. This is the good stuff. He's made some really high quality stuff here. This is, I mean, we could dig a lot more out of this, but he, he wants to bless his people when he does abundantly. When Christ blesses us, he, he does it in surprising and weird ways, right? But he blesses us abundantly. We could all think about maybe situations in our lives where where maybe you've been blessed by the Lord, not just in a small way, but overflowingly, abundantly blessed. Where a problem that didn't require a miraculous solution was just solved in an abundant way, right? It's amazing. And he does this as the perfect groom. He does this miracle to fill up what is lacking in this earthly groom, right? You can just picture the relationship. This guy is getting married, and his, his, soon, his now wife looks over at him, and she's like, did you really forget to buy enough wine for the party? Like, I, he had one thing at the grocery store. And, and he says, like, come on. And like, but the, the groom never gets blamed for this, right? The, the head of ceremonies actually praises the groom. Jesus doesn't even bother to take, like, credit for it. But he, what he's doing, providing wine for the wedding, is what anyone in this culture would have immediately known. That's what the groom does. He's identifying himself as the groom. Why does he do that? Well, hopefully if you've been around the church for a minute, maybe you remember, the, in, Christ is the groom to the church. The church is the bride of Christ. We can say it both ways. And this is a, a relationship the New Testament brings out a whole lot the picture of all of us collected, not just here this morning, but in all the churches and all of time and space, as together the bride of Christ being made perfect and beautiful and sanctified to be without sin so that we can be wed to Christ. 
a weird image, a little bit, but also a beautiful one. And, and John expounds this dramatically in his final book, the, the last one in your Bibles, Revelation. Uh, he has all these letters to the churches and this great cosmic battle all leading up not to a coronation like we would think of of a king, not to an election, not to anything else but a wedding feast. The wedding feast of the Lamb. Where at this final wonderful wedding, at this wonderful feast, the church is purified once and for all in this dramatic way, by the way. They're washed in blood. And then they come out clean and white. And the, the church is purified to be now made clean, the perfect bride for the perfect groom, for Christ. I think John expects this to, to us to pull a little bit out, right? Earlier when he responded to Mary, I forgot to, to pause on this, but he, when he responded to Mary, I think in verse uh, 4, he says, My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. There's some significance in that phrase. If you go through John a couple of times, you'll realize every time Jesus talks about hour, every time he talks about my hour, he's talking about his death on the cross. If you just look at the structure of John, if you do read it sequentially, we've got these wonderful little spiritual, uh, like printed out guides with notebooks and everything outside of John. You're welcome to take one. Um, if you read through the whole book, there's the, basically the first half, where he's doing signs and miracles and awesome stuff. And then it pauses and it grinds to a halt for chapters and chapters and chapters where they're in the upper room and they're talking and they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. Like three years go by in the first couple chapters. And then an equal amount of space is given to like two or three days. It's really weird because those two or three days, this time on the cross, his time in Jerusalem, that's his hour. Every reference to that and the whole rest of the book, my hour is a reference to his death on the cross. And John expects us to have read his book multiple times, right? We're only in chapter two. There's no way we could know right now that every other reference to hour in the book is going to be about death. But when we do give it time, when we do realize that every other reference about hour, he says, my hour has not yet come. He's not talking to Mary about like the fact that it's not time for him to do a miracle. No, that's not what he means at all. He's about to do the miracle. Instead, he's talking about, it's not yet time for me to die which is a weird thing to say. But it's not yet time for me to die. Uh, as we look at this passage, we get to see a taste of what's going to come. We get just a taste of the, the future glory Christ is going to have. In verse 11, the end of it, Christ gives us a glimpse of his glory. It says, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested he made real. He let them see his glory. And his disciples believed in him. When, whenever John does a sign, whenever Jesus does a sign in the book of John, the, the thing that follows it pretty much every time is that people believe. In the other Gospels, you know, oftentimes Jesus does miracles because he feels compassion and his heart is moved, right? That's an important thing we need to know about Jesus. Or oftentimes, he says, because of your faith, you've been healed, right? You've done, because you had faith, I've done something miraculous. In John, the thing he's trying to highlight for us is that Christ's signs aren't a reason to worry about our faith, but they actually can produce faith. When we see Christ doing miraculous and wonderful, extraordinary things, his disciples believe in, that he is who he says that he is. 
This is his first public sign. He's done crazy things before in the book, but this is his first one for the public audience. And it's done in his home area. It's done in his hometown at a couple he probably knew, the bride and groom, right? They're invited. Um, and he knows he's not going to be believed as much there, but it still bothers to tell us his disciples believed in him. And he manifests his glory. That's such a weird Weird word, right? A manifest is like the list of things on a ship that tells us, or a packing container or anything, it tells us what's in there, right? We get to see what's on the manifest, what's in the crate. Christ manifests his glory. He lets us see who he is. He gives us a glimpse inside the box. Who is he? He lets us see a little bit of his future glory. In John, we're not actually going to see all of his glory, right? Because he dies at the end of the book back from the dead too. But he dies at the end of the book. It's not as exciting as Revelation where he's alive. Because we, we know theologically that Christ has been resurrected, but he's yet to be fully glorified. He, it's the already not yet, right? He's already been resurrected, but he's not yet fully glorified. He will be fully glorified when we celebrate at his wedding feast, when we are the perfect bride, when there is an abundance of wine fully then he will be fully glorified. These signs give us a chance to glimpse God's glory, right? This, this wedding metaphor, I think, is maybe helpful if you've been to a wedding, right? When everybody stands up and they play bum, bum, ba bum, right? Everyone turns around to get a glimpse of the bride coming down the aisle, Right? Really good husbands normally cry at this point. I was afraid I wasn't, I just, I don't know why, I got worried I might laugh. And then it was like a big problem. I'm sorry, Gracie, you deserve tears. And you didn't get laughter though, so that's a positive. Um, and we, but whenever you hear that and everyone stands up at a wedding, people turn around just to get a glimpse, right, of the bride and all of her glory. In this we see just a glimpse, just a look at the, the Christ that we're going to see fully uh, when he returns. And, and he's showing us these signs to point us to his true identity so that we might really believe that he is who he says that he is. When his disciples see him doing this amazing thing, they get just a taste, just an idea that he really is who he says that he is. And, and the same is offered to each of us. We have maybe a smaller glimpse because we weren't there. But we do have a glimpse in his word that he is who he says that he is. So what do we see in the story? This, this first public sign of his ministry. Hopefully we see that in turning water into wine, Christ shows us his faithfulness to the Father, right? He is faithful primarily to the Father, not to his family here on earth. He blesses us, his people, abundantly as the perfect groom, he does not let us down. He does not run out of wine at his wedding. He blesses, not in just a small way, not in just a physical need, but abundantly, right? And he gives us a glimpse of his glory. And, and just thinking about that abundant blessing, it would be remiss if I didn't point us to the cross, right? Each of us has fallen short, whether or not it's uh, like the groom here, forgot to pick up something from the store, or something much more dramatic, each of us can, can know and pause and think about ways that we have let down others in our lives. Let down your spouse, let down your family, let down your friends, let down your Lord. That each of us have fallen short of what we were designed to do. We've lived in rebellion 
to the one who made us. And yet Christ blesses us abundantly. He doesn't just say, it's okay. He doesn't just say that. He forgives us. He doesn't even just say, your sin has been washed away. He actually gives us His righteousness as well. It's a wonderful, wonderful gift. And and each week, we're not doing it this week because I'm not ordained, but each week normally we get to see a physical sign, a reminder of the spiritual reality, right? That as we take communion, we take this wine normally uh, that is just physical wine, we believe, but spiritually we have the real reality of Christ's blood shed on our behalf. Uh, There's this really funny historical fact, right? Hocus Pocus, the the magic words, not the Halloween movie that you're all about to watch on Disney, but the, the, um, the, the magic words, right? They're the moment where something magic happens. You say that. They're from this historical reality of mass in England in the Middle Ages when the priest would pick up the cup and he would say, Hoc est corpus. This is the body and the blood, right? He'd, he'd do that at communion. And people in England in the Middle Ages, not speaking Latin, just heard Hocus Corpus and came up with Hocus Pocus. That's at least what we think happened. Uh, that, that was the magic words, the magic moment where in the Catholic Mass, uh, they believe, right, that it becomes transubstantiation, that this crazy thing happens. It's not what we believe here, uh, but it, it was the magic words, hoc est corpus. In, in this sign, Christ doesn't actually pause to show us where the magic happens. The water becomes wine, and we don't actually even know where the magic words take place. It's something really important, I think, and really life-giving, because Christ does not operate like magic. His signs are not a matter of special words that we say. And our forgiveness, it's not either. It's, it's not a matter of receiving magic words and now you're forgiving. It's not a matter of cleansing yourself with purification rites like they had to do or things that we might come up with like a certain number of times we need to read our Bible or pray or services you have to attend. It's nothing like that. He chooses to bless us abundantly, not with magic words, but with his actual blood. Not with just wine, but with his actual sacrifice. That ultimately we might see his full glory revealed. The full glory of the Father manifested in the Son, exercised out in the Spirit. That as we celebrate at his wedding feast, there might be no shortage of wine, no shortage of anything. And so that, as John tells us, we might see it and we might believe. But ask each of us, to pause this morning and just think for a minute. We're going to see this in each of the signs. It gets kind of old maybe even, hopefully not too old, that Christ shows us who he is and then asks us, do we believe? Just pause for a minute and after we pray and think, do you believe? Do I believe, right? Am I willing to take Christ for who he says that he is? And, and if you would, you know, this is just an amazing opportunity for us to put our faith in him because he is hoping to bless us each abundantly. Thanks for listening to this audio from Holy Cross Church. Visit us at holycrosstucson.com to find more resources and connect with us.